Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining us my co-host, Cecil Phillip. How are you doing today, Cecil? Doing pretty good, man. Happy New Year, Richie. Happy New Year to you too, man. Uh, hopefully 2017 is going to go a little bit better than 2016 did. Yeah, I'm definitely ready to get this this year up and going, man. There's a lot of cool things we got in store, so, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, you know. And, you know, it's the time of New Year's resolutions and all that other fun stuff. So I started running again. Well, it's about time. I've been trying to get you to do that for a while. I know, I know. But, you know, this time it was my kids. My uh, eldest daughter said, you know, Dad, can we run tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, sure, hon, let's do that. So we did that one day, and then the next morning she wanted to do it. So, not, of course, if one has to go, the other has to go as well. So I had two girls running, and uh, the second day we ran, my daughter's like, oh, man, I got a cramp. I'm like, okay, you know, walk it off. It'll be okay. And we kind of walked for a little bit, and then... We ran for a little bit, and then all of a sudden it was blah. She vomits all over the floor. I'm like, oh. oh, it's okay, honey. Even professionals, they vomit when they uh, overexert themselves just a little bit. So, yeah, she was fine. We, you know, kind of relaxed the way home and, and whatnot. You know, we got the two miles in. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting that, seeing uh, my daughter's breakfast on the way up on the floor that was pretty oh. exciting oh you guys ate before you went running oh i she did i did not i never do i just i can't do it, it at best it's like half a bagel and that's it right but you know she's 11 she doesn't really know these things yet so uh she had a breakfast and you know you wake up you eat breakfast that's kind of normal thing but sometimes not before you run so <laughs> she learned the hard way gotcha gotcha i hope she's feeling better yeah she was good she was good she kind of felt better afterwards i'm like i understand babe i understand nice nice, nice. so what's cool. new with you man so i've been uh, i've been going back and forth on this this home automation thing for the house yeah man it's been an adventure for you man yeah it's, i've been going back and forth on it you know the house came with some stuff that i didn't have to get so that was good you know it came with a nest it has some security cameras um i had a a keypad, keypad lock for the door. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff that it came with. I've always wanted to do a little bit more. Like I've been looking at the Samsung Smart Things. That looks pretty cool. I've been looking yep. at, you know, the Alexa and the Google Home and, you know, some of these other things that I could kind of, you know, start to to do some, you know, some more of that automation stuff and, you know, kind of get into the whole internet of things thing that I'm so terrified of, you know. But what I actually eventually ended up doing was I got a I got a security hub. And I won't talk about the name of the company that I went with, but I got a security hub. And the security hub, it had, it plugs into a lot of these IoT thingies already, right? It has, you know, it can control the lights, it can control the temperature of the nest, I can, you know, remote control access the doors and I could look at the cameras and all kinds of stuff from my phone and my tablet. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I might not, I might be able to plug in some of these things into that instead of me having to get another s- smart home hub type situation. So I've been looking at that for a little bit. Um, and it's been pretty, it's been pretty interesting so far. You know, my next thing to get is I need to get a a garage door controller. So that's my next thing. And I'm, I'm going to buy one of those in Home Depot and install that myself. You know, it's just a, it's a little controller that, you know, you plug it in. I know exactly where it goes. So it, it should be a pretty quick job. Oh, um, okay. 
yeah, it should be, you know, 15, 20 minute job type deal, if, if that much. And then I could plug that into the hub now and I'll be able to remote access my garage, like open and close it from my phone kind of thing. So, you know, slowly but surely, I'm going to start plugging in some of these things and, and seeing, you know, and kind of seeing how it goes. But so far, so good. Cool, man. Cool. Sounds like you're uh, having a little bit of fun there with the new place. Yeah, you know, boys and the toys, right? Yeah, man. So I hear we've got uh, an event coming up. We do. So the South Florida Code Camp is going to be on March 11th at Nova Southeastern University. I don't even know which one this is. This is like, what, the, the 10th, 11th, 12th? You know 12th which or something, man. Yeah, it's been, we've done this a lot. We've been doing this for many years. Yeah, this has been going on for many years. It's a huge event, tons of developers, tons of different technologies, topics, you know, JavaScript, Node.js, .NET, database technology, Power BI, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, again, it's going down on March 11th, Nova Southeastern University, you know, here in Fort Lauderdale. Call for speakers are still open. And, yep. Um, and then also, too, you can also make sure you register for the event. It's a free event. Again, totally free. Going to be on a Saturday. So, you know, if you're in the area or if you feel like, you know, coming out to, to Florida to warm up from the cold, uh, you know, come on and check it out. Yeah, it's always my favorite event of the South Florida Tech Calendar. Yes, sir. So who are we talking to today? So today we're talking to Kathleen Dollard. So Kathleen loves to code and loves to talk about code. That makes sense, right? Loves to code, yep. loves to talk about code. Yeah, that, that, that kind of makes one and one makes two. Along the way, she's an architect, a manager, a teacher, a writer, a speaker, and hopefully still a fun person. She's written tons of articles, a book, and smoking around the world. She's the director of engineering for ROI Code, previously real, and has videos in both Pluralsight and the Wintelect Now libraries. That's very cool. Yeah, well, she's a pretty cool lady. She's a very, very cool lady. This episode is recorded on September 20th, 2016, and now our conversation with Kathleen Dollard. And now, away from the keyboard's feature conversation. So today, away from the keyboard, we'd like to welcome Kathleen Dollard to the show. So Kathleen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, it's just been a great day, and I'm just kicking back and having a cider and chatting with you guys and uh, having a great time. That's awesome. So for our listeners that are not so familiar with who you are and what is it exactly to you, could you give us a little bit of a, a background story? Yeah, so um, I've been programming for a long time uh, in a number of different languages. Um, I have been a Microsoft MVP since 1998, which means I'm one of the old ones. Not the oldest, but one of the old ones. Wow. Um, and that really represents a lot of stuff I've done with the community. Uh, I've been contributing, to, I've been recognized for my contributions in community for about 25 years in some other languages before uh, coming to .NET. And it's been just, I have to say, just an absolutely fantastic ride. Uh, I absolutely love working with community. That's great. Um, right now, I'm working a real job after uh, several decades uh, independent. I have the director of engineering at a small software company called ROI Code. And can I sneak in that we're hiring? So yeah, please do. <laughs> Absolutely. We're in Denver. Uh, we're in Denver, Colorado. And uh, we do have a place in Jacksonville, Florida as well. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, give a shout. Uh, we're looking for uh, just about everybody. And do you guys hire remote too or no? Nope. Uh, we're pretty much in the room. We're very, uh, we're very up close and personal. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, Kathleen, you mentioned that you've been a MVP since 1998. Isn't that scary? 
So what was it like being an MVP then compared to what is it like now? Well, I think it's it's really hard for people to understand that nobody knew about the program. And I mean nobody. I My belief is that there was a temp who took care of the MSDN subscriptions because they've been there since the beginning of time. And uh, I think that what happened was every year her boss came along and it was easier to just okay her existence for another year than it was to figure out what the heck she did. So uh, literally no one knew what the program was. And it was a bunch of people that were just really committed to communities and online communities because right. it was all answering questions at that point. And man, we just had a great time and I still have a great time. Um, I was spent a lot of time at home with little kids and I was able to go out and help people and make friends. And some of those folks are still close friends of mine and people I really believe in and I'm very glad they're in my life. So being an MVP for so long, I know that MVPs are, are very topic focused, like your MVP of, you know, PowerShell or this or that. Right. So what, what is your MVP focus been? Well, you know, they've made a change in that recently in the last uh, year, I guess. Uh, so now actually it's much more vague and I am now a .NET MVP. I started as a Visual Basic MVP. Then I was a Visual Basic .NET MVP. And then I started calling myself a languages MVP because like most of the well, like many of the high-end Visual Basic developers, I was doing both. And then in the last year or two, I've been doing, maybe a little longer, I've been doing uh, mostly C-sharp. Okay. And, and a few other languages. I play in Python. I play in Haskell. Right. I play in JavaScript. I play in other things. Sure, sure, sure. And so, again, like, so you get this MVP award from being mm -hmm. you know, involved in the community. So what really, you know, where does your passion for community really come from? Um. You know, it's it's a funny thing. It I always get more out of community than I put into it. I have from the very beginning. So there's kind of a sense of, well, Kathleen, why do you contribute this time? And I have put in many, many thousands of hours over the years. But I always get so much back out of it. Um, so one way to look at it, it's very simple, that applies if you're answering questions on Stack Overflow or something like that, which is I would much rather find the answer to a problem when it's someone else's problem. And I get to learn from that and move forward. And the first uh, maybe eight, nine, ten years of my being an MVP, it was almost exclusively online. Now it is almost exclusively in person and uh, things like video. And uh, I haven't written a book for a while, but, you know, that type of thing now. But when I was online, that's how I got uh, a lot back. And now I get to go to events. And uh, I love to say I do events for hugs. Uh, so <laughs> nice. I, I see my friends. Uh, I see a lot of friends. And I make a lot of friends and uh, meet really wonderful people uh, at conferences. And so, very exciting. So, I got to ask, what what really got you into .NET? Like, how did you get started with C Sharp and, and, and that but, ecosystem? Yeah, so I actually came from VB. So, the, the, the deeper question is, how did I start in Microsoft Languages? Wow. Um, and I used to work in a language called Clipper uh, that, that a few people will remember. And yep. it had a very sad demise. Uh, there was uh, much sadness when a very large computer company bought them and was unable to make the merger work. We'll just keep it that simple. And so that language was just died. It, it went nowhere. So uh, I was looking for a new place to be. And after this very bad experience, losing my community, in this smaller community, I thought, well, I'm going where the big guys play. And so I went to Visual Basic and 
Robert Scoble got me involved in moderating the old set forums, and I guess I just went from there. You know, one of the things I always like to ask our guests, particularly our guests that have, have had a, a really strong and, you know, a fairly long, successful career is, you know, how do you continue to be relevant? Right. Like, like what, like what is your learning process like? How do you keep up with new technologies and, and how do you know what to focus your time on? You know, that's a great question because it's valid question for everybody, whether they've been in the industry for a long time, like I have, or whether they're just brand new to it. It's still a really good question. What do you focus on and, and where do you go next? And for me, a lot of it just comes from, I guess it's the squirrel mentality. What goes running by that I want to go chase? So I've been working uh, a lot on thinking about how software teams work uh, in the last year. And I run a team, of course. I did a keynote uh, at Code on the Beach on that and just really enjoying getting into that. Uh, in terms of technology, sometimes it's because of what I need to do at work. Uh, I spent six months in full-time in Python, and that was because of what we were doing in my day job. Uh, I go back to Haskell often because my older son is a Haskell among, he's a, he's a mathematician, but Haskell is the program that he is a programming language he uses the most. Uh, so I go back to Haskell, uh, when I'm working with him and presenting with him. And so I, 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 it's often something that's some weird external demand. Uh, sometimes I'm just interested in something. Right now, I'm looking to find time to uh, learn some Unity. Because I think that uh, it's really cool to be able to make worlds and do things with the Unity templates and all. And I just love to go play there for a while. So you mentioned that your son your son's a mathematician. Your son's in coding. Did your children get their their coding bug? I guess from you, or is that something kind of developed on their own? Well, I, I'm afraid we have to blame a little bit of genes, perhaps too. We have. Uh, uh, like I think four math PhDs in the family. So, uh, it's pretty scary sometimes. But yes, my mother, uh, myself and my sons are all programmers. So, uh, they're not only third generation programmers, but it was their mother and grandmother. Um, I taught my mother to code though. I was the first in the family, uh, to pick it up. But it was interesting because they're four years apart. The older one grew up just seeming to know how to code from the very beginning. And he's an amazing programmer, an amazing mathematician. Um, I give a shout out. His name is Ben Joris, and he writes the Haskell videos uh, for Pluralsight. And uh, his younger brother was four years younger. And I'll tell you, you know, you're, there was two languages MVPs living in the house, plus older brother who got all this stuff. And my younger son just kind of looked at all that and picked up his dinner and went to his room. I mean, it was very, he didn't feel part of it. So he actually didn't code until he was an astrophysicist. And astrophysics folks deal with data. That, that's their world. And so he learned to, uh, to code in some archaic languages and then has started back to a coding school. So they kind of had their own histories in getting where they are today. So I gotta ask, with all of these, you know, all the, the programming minds in the house, do you guys go back and forth between what's the best way to do something and, you know, the functional versus object oriented, um, type battles? We did. <laughs> when my older son was about 13, he would come down one day and go, ah, oh, my code is so hard to read. I'm gonna go make it object oriented. 
And then he'd come down again and he'd go, oh, my coat is slow. I'm going to make it imperative again. And so he, we did, there was a lot of that when he was young. Now he's extremely opinionated on programming and teaches me a lot. I have to say that. Uh, my younger son, since he started a coding boot camp, um, give a shout out to the Turing School in Denver. Uh, it's a great, it's a nonprofit coding school, fantastic program. Just can't speak highly enough of what he's learning. But as he started into that, our bus rides, our conversations at home, there's a whole lot around what he's doing at school uh, and what he's learning and extending what he's learning. And uh, today he had a, a problem about a many-to-many -many table and understanding something, and that was the bus ride uh, into Denver was uh, working through that. Huh. How did you find it and how did you you know, get your kids into it? Yeah, so it's called the Turing School I'm after sorry. Alan Turing. And uh, it's it's a, I heard about it because we would love to hire their graduates. Uh, they're uh, they're extremely good, and so for junior programmers, they tend to be uh, a bit on the uh, I don't know a bit on the pricey side. I guess they have an average uh, placement of seventy six thousand, which is pretty impressive. Uh, a lot of those are folks coming back for a second career, but they're the people we I wanted to hire. <laughs> as a director of engineering. And so I thought that was the best place for my son to go to school, was was the place that I wanted to hire the, the graduates. And I think it was a good decision um, because they ver focus a lot on the experience of being a programmer, not just learning a language because, you know, once you learn a language, you've got that. But things like in order to even apply, you have to have a GitHub account. And uh, he, he was... He, he couldn't go to breakfast with me the other morning because he said, Mom, I've got to get in, and there's a PR I need to review and approve and push it out to Heroku so that I can have a client meeting at 10 o'clock. they got to remember, he's in school. That's what he does on a Monday morning in his school. Wow. And so that is it's just a really good all-around program. So, And I love the fact it's a nonprofit, so all their decisions are made for the good of the students and the, the school as a whole. So. So your older son, so you, you said you mentioned that you work with him sometimes. Do you guys work with the same company? Uh, my older son has worked uh, with me at times. He's been a consultant with a couple of companies because he's an algorithms genius. And so if we have a problem where we want somebody to come in and look at it from an algorithmic perspective, he's just a great choice. So I can, you know, he's on my speed dial. So, you know, I can get a hold of him. Right. Uh, we also, we spoke together in, at SDD Conference, uh, the SDD Conf Software Design and Developers Conference in London in May. Uh, we did a joint workshop on polyglot programming, and uh, it was a lot. I, I really respect the people that stuck with us all day because we did five languages in seven hours, and uh, I, it was a lot. I, I don't know that I'd do it again because I like to push people in workshops. I'd like to find their edges and really have them get a lot of value for the money. But there does come a point you've just got so much that they're, it's hard for them to hold it all. But it was a whole lot of fun to put together and do. One of the things that I do also too is I, I teach um, some college kids. Oh, and cool. I always find it an interesting balance to try and figure out, well, how much is too much information within that allotted period of time? And yes. you know what? You always have people that everybody's not never on the same level, right? People absorb information on very different rates. Right? Well, that's absolutely, absolutely true. So what are some of the things that you do to kind of balance some of that to make sure you get a good general, you know, understanding across the people that you're talking to? One thing I like to do is, is to work with some things around uh, something called cognitive dissonance, which is the fact that when we get new information, we 
try to make it fit into the information we already have, which means that, and there's some, some great uh, studies on this, we have a tendency when we get new information to make it prove in our heads some false information we already have, if we already have false information. And uh, some of the work has been done around the second law thermodynamics, which is subtle and all. But for programming, one of the things I find, and I use in my workshops, is I have programmers talk to each other. Because if they say out loud what they're thinking, and they they pick it up and they think about the the idea that's in their head, it becomes very crystallized. And then whether they're right or wrong actually makes no difference. Then when I show them code that runs and proves, and it's not my words, it's actually code telling them where truth is, then it either shatters that cognitive dissonance and they really see and learn, or they get confirmation that they already knew that piece. And there might be something else that during the day that they have wrong, or they just, you know, they find out they know more than they thought they did. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to do that. Um, I like, I like slides. I know it's really unpopular, but I think (laughs) I do. I do. I like slides because if I put code up, people have so much that they're trying to get in. You know, the Visual Studio is just bombarding them. Even Visual Studio code is bombarding them with different pieces of information that they have to look at and go, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That right there, that's what they're talking about. And it's just really hard for people to, uh, to get that, that level of focus. And, I do, you know, I do respect the fact that people love to see code. And when I teach C Sharp 7, I do a good bit of that in code. But then I do drop into slides kind of after about half an hour. Um, I show a couple pictures in slides just to kind of give it a little break and help that way. I'm going to ask you, what do you, what do you feel like is more, um, is more driving for you? Like, do you, do you like working on products more or do you like teaching and training more? Cause I feel like you get a good, you get a good balance of both, right? I try to do both. I love writing code. I, I just did some uh, some really nice functional stuff that I'm hoping to figure out the best way to, to talk about. It was for uh, a product, but it's something I want to go out and talk about. Um, I do really still love to write code, but it's people that I find most interesting. I think they overwhelmed me for a long time in my career, that it was very hard for me to stand up and say, yeah, let's just do it this way. Come on, let's go on. And it was, I'd be like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I think this. And it was hard in a work setting for me to really, uh, I guess, be a leader. Um, and in the last uh, year, I guess, um, partially because my, my current boss pushes me a lot in that direction, um, I've, I've really gotten a lot more comfortable being able to to have that focus on providing direction, which oddly, it, it was counterintuitive to me, but it means I can, I can pay more attention to the people. I'm not worried about the technology as much. Um, I'm, I'm able to spend more time actually thinking about how the people are growing, both technically and personally, while they're working with us. And that's just a really, a really great thing. That's just a whole lot of fun. So I think I'm shifting a little bit. I think technology and language design and all of that, that was like my passion for so long. And now there's, there's a lot of, I'm really interested in people as well. They're pretty interesting. So. <laughs> well, one of the things that we like to say in the show is we write software for people, right? So it, it's, it's good if we get to understand the people and, you know, what are their, what are their needs and what is it exactly needs to happen for them to get their job done? 
Yeah, you know, that that's absolutely true. I, I have to say, and this is terrible, I hope nobody at my work will, will listen to this and think too badly of me. I'm not as interested in users. I, I just have to admit that. Um, I want users to give me clear guidelines about what they need. Of course, that's great. And there's people that work with me um, that I trust much more to be able to to get across really into that empathy. Uh, the people that interest me most are actually coders. How do we coders actually get fantastic software written with high quality in a reasonable amount of time? That process and the people of that process is what actually captivates me the most. I don't mind users, actually. I mean, we have mm -hmm. great users and and I enjoy making them happy, and when they smile, that's wonderful. But it, it's really getting programmers doing what they do really well. That That's a, a huge uh, interest of mine right now. And that kind of feels like it goes in a little bit to that talk you gave at Code on the Beach, right? You spoke a little bit about teams and how you can make teams effective. I did. Uh, I had a really fun keynote. It was actually my first keynote. Uh, so that was a kind of a big, it was a big moment for me and I had a great time. It was a fantastic audience. Um, and there, it was, it was really a great opportunity for me to push my vision, which is that everyone who's part of a team is also helping to guide and lead that team. Obviously, we have the real leaders, the identified leaders. But everybody's contributing and everyone's making a difference. And so even though it was a talk on teams, I spent, I think about half the talk. It was, it was a tough to time that talk because I only, I knew that, that people were waiting for drinks and I started on stage <laughs> half an hour late. I was half an hour late. So I'm between people and their drinks and I cut it down to 45 minutes. So I'm not exactly sure how the balance was, but about half of it or a little more, I intended to be about how you are better at what you're doing. Um, how you're more effective. I talked about the Pomodoro technique. I talked about imposter syndrome. I talked about the things that can stand between you and being able to be effective on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, because I think that's an important part of it. I think that it's, it's a good thing to actually spend some time on that um, and get better at it, it just how we go to work and how we sit at work and how we do the things that we do at work to be effective in that world. You know, one of the things that I could say that I've noticed, at least in the, the Florida, South Florida community, is for for most employees, most employees want to do good work. A lot Absolutely. of the, a lot of the time it's a it's an issue of, you know, do we have the time, the resources, and do we have the buy-in from management to to put certain things in place to allow us to do so? So for instance, there's there's a lot of teams that, you know, they don't get time to unit test their code or they don't get time right. to do code reviews or they don't get time to experiment and learn and try new things. And so a lot of these little things that, you know, we may do to, to kind of help push us forward, to help make us a little bit more effective, we don't always get the chance to do it because like so many other things need to kind of be in place to allow us to do so. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I've been uh, reading a book called the F the Four Disciplines of Execution. It's a business book, but it has a really good sort of a, a way of thinking about that's the whirlwind. That's what goes on. It's the reason you work. Okay, it's very important. But if that's all you can do, then you're never able to make your world better. Um, and if if you can get any time carved out of that to make the whirlwind a little bit better. And you want to use that time pretty effectively. Uh, and that's a lot of what that book's about. But I really like the vision of this is a whirlwind. And it is hard. Um, I, I think that we have this incredibly bad image of like the three-legged stool with one leg is quality. One leg 
is uh, is delivery date, and then one leg is like features or something or cost or or something. And I, I really really get upset about that analogy because dropping quality does not make you deliver faster. Dropping quality makes you deliver slower. Uh, there is no way around that. And when people believe that not doing code reviews or not unit testing, um, and maybe not unit testing, maybe go to integration testing depending on your system and depending on your goals. But if you can't do the things that in your setting makes quality a given, you will have poor quality. And it is so expensive to back up from bugs any place in the pipeline after the, even, you know, when you're collecting your ideas, every place you make a mistake, it becomes so much more expensive that it's a completely false economy to say that if we can cut testing out and be cheaper. It, you're not. You're, you're more expensive and you're slower and you don't build a happy product. You have a bad experience. So uh, I, I wish we could get that out in the world and have business understand and believe that. Right. Um, I, I know it's really tough for folks that are working in a situation where they can't do that. And, you know, I, I have to say part of, you know, if, if you can't create quality code, I, I hate to say this, but part of what I hope you're able to do is look to your future in a way that you can go do something. You can go work for another company and you can write code or you can write quality code. And you're not, you know, wondering in the middle of the night whether the phone's going to ring and something's going to be broken and you have no idea or you're, you're, in, you're working on code and you're just like, yeah, we don't really know why this works. You know? <laughs> That's not yeah. a happy experience for anybody. So in, in your current, you know, your current job and, you know, with the people that you're working with, what are some of the practices that you put in place in your current teams to help you guys be effective? Well, we're, we're right now, um, and, and we're kind of always doing this, we're just in a particularly intense phase of it right now, where we're, we're kind of looking at everything. Um, I can't tell you for sure we're going to continue stand-ups. Um, I, I've always had kind of a, a really, I'm not a fan of stand-ups. I, I put up with them, but it's not a big, it's not a big favorite. Um, we, we do work in a bullpen, so we're very available to each other. Um, we have headphones and do various things, but that's a good thing for our company. Uh, we uh, definitely do a sprint pattern, but it's not consistent. We'll have the sprints be sized to what we're trying to accomplish. Um, those things are all important uh, to us. We, we are working on some new plans around how we define specifications because right now that's our biggest weakness. I think it's a lot of people's biggest, biggest weakness, right. um, knowing what you're going to build. At, at what point did you really get into for instance, doing public speaking and becoming a more out there person. Yeah, so it's interesting. Just I had this, everybody has their own path. And, and mine was to do online work back in the day. And um, uh, Robert Scoble was working on the Fawcett for, forums at the time. And he decided he would rather have like the doors checked at a conference by uh, by MVPs that, who he just gave free passes to right. rather than hiring people. So I went to uh, one of their events in uh, in San Francisco back in, oh, I don't know, a long time ago, maybe 1998, something like that, and just really just decided I wanted to be up there on stage. And so that was my first goal, and I was terrible. I mean, I just really cannot tell you how bad I was. And people, there's a few people in Denver that still remember I was really bad. 
and it took a lot of speeches. The Denver User Group was a great place, and other places. And and eventually, I, I got competent, I guess, and and then uh, just really spent some time on the Ineta circuit because I really believed in going to small user groups and supporting people that were just trying to start a user group. But forty people in a room in Mitchell, South Dakota, Mitchell, yeah, South Dakota. And that will always be one of the things that I feel like I accomplished in my life. Some people drove eight hours to be at that talk. So uh, wow. I was just, you know, things like that just really meant a lot to me. So it's, it's been fun. And then I kind of got stuck because I had done everything I wanted to do. Um, I spoke at every conference I cared about. Uh, I was getting international invitations. I was just like, well, what do I do next? And uh, so I, I kind of spent about three years not really kind of knowing what route that was going to be. And now I'm really invigorated to be back on the road, uh, doing some conferences. And part of that is being able to talk about teams. Part of that is the changes at Microsoft because it's just so much more fun to work with people that don't, ha- I don't have to keep track of what's under NDA anymore. I barely have information. Um, and, and it's very clear when I do. Uh, it's, I rarely have information that other people don't have. So it's, it's much more fun now to have everybody sitting in the ringside seat for the changes, excuse me, for the changes that are going to affect all of us in the next uh, few years. So, so Kathleen, I want to talk about a little bit more about you and, and some of the things that you're doing at home. So you mentioned that you just bought a house or you just recently got into a new house? Yeah, I, I bought a house last spring. So uh, I, I didn't really think I'd come back to Denver, uh, but, but this was a great job and it was a good time for me. I have some changes in my life where uh, that it was a sensible thing to do. So I lived in a, a pseudo penthouse for a year. It was a great fun, but I was really ready to settle down and to uh, you know have a. I found a, a place that's like two apartments on top of each other. So for the moment, um, my son and his wife are in the bottom apartment while he's going to school, and then I'll do something else with it later. But it's just it's a real. I really like the house. It's the right house for me. And I still haven't got everything fixed, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, it's just, it just was a lot to suddenly become a homeowner again on a 1961 house with a lot of things just going wrong. So there's lots of money to be spent, but I get my son through school first and then, and then spend money. Yeah. One of the things I, uh, our, our house was built in 1969 and we're just the second okay. owners of, of this house. And oh, wow. One of the things I, yeah, one of the things I love about this house is that it has plaster walls and you just don't find that you know, anywhere around these days. And That's so you right. just know that they're, they're solid. And, and if you want to, you know, nail into them, you, you got to put some effort into that. <laughs> yeah. not, it's it's just not easy, but um, it's, it just, just has a different feel, you know, it just has a, it's, it's a more sturdier um, kind of grade, you know, yes. in the house as opposed to your standard drywall. Yes. Yes. So I love that. And I uh, beautiful wood floors. I love that. And uh, it just has a feel of just being being me. So I've I've really enjoyed uh, settling in here, and um, it, it's been great. So I just drive into, you know, I just take the bus into downtown Denver every day, and uh, never have to drive in Denver traffic. Which that's the goal if you live in Denver. For me, is don't drive. So. <laughs> now, are you originally from Denver, or were you from somewhere else before? Uh, actually, I'm a space brat. So uh, oh. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, okay. Most of the people I knew were, in one way or another, associated with the Apollo program, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful life. Uh, so it uh, made me very, very aware 
of how much people can accomplish when they work together with a common goal. And they're, you know, it's a little bit like a pulling together on a, like a rowing crew or maybe a football team. I've never played football where everybody's pulling the same direction and you can accomplish such phenomenal things. Now, I, I realize for a lot of people, you look back at the space program and it's just one of those historic things like, you know, Lewis and Clark or, or something like that. But, but it was like Lewis and Clark in that they set out to do something that no one knew could be done. It, we just didn't know we could do it. And so in 61, when they started uh, saying, we'll put a man on the moon and bring him safely back again, that whole program happened with people that just believed they could do it. And to have grown up in that was a really incredible experience. So I was quite happy uh, to have that, that life growing up. And so what made you decide to, to come over to Denver? Like, what is it about that area that really attracted you to it? Because I always find that people... When they, when they move to a new place, there's always, you know, outside of work, right? There's always something about the culture, about the people, about the environment that really draws them to be there. Yes. So I, I uh, spent uh, almost 20 years living in uh, Fort Collins, which is north of, of Denver. Uh, that's where my children grew up. And it, we moved there because uh, their father's family was in this area and we were ready to leave Houston, uh, which is where we were living at the time. And I sort of got stuck in Texas, uh, growing up in Alabama. Then I went to Texas and got stuck. And then I kind of went to Colorado and got stuck. And, and there is an element of that where you, you know, where people know you. Um, the, I've known my boss for about 12 years and he, uh, he's like, here, this is the job I want you to do. And it was a very, you know, I can't say no to that as long as I can still have time to do the th- other things, to, to go to the conferences and, and do the other things. This is a really, really good job for me. Because I get to work with people, and I get to help them be better at what they do. And that, to me, is just about as fun as it gets. So, yeah, so I can't say it's so much Colorado. I do get out in the mountains some. Uh, but as, a, as an Alabama girl, I have to say that, you know, that, that it's the green I miss. Um, and I'm right now contemplating whether I'm going to take a last-minute flight to Vermont. I've never seen the northeastern colors. Uh, I grew up where the, there was pretty colors. Uh, but I've never seen it in the northeast. So I'm... Part of me wants to jump on a plane in two weeks and go up and check out the fall colors in Vermont. And part of me is sensible and knows I should work. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I enjoy Colorado. But uh, right now I'm I'm not skiing this year. So I'm going to miss that probably, mostly. I might ski a few times, but I'm not going to buy a season pass. Uh, but I get up a little bit in the mountains and they're very beautiful. Uh, I do enjoy that. But I don't hike as much as you think you would living here. Uh, I, I enjoy the area, but I don't get out as much as I'd like. So I have never, I've never seen snow in my life. So when oh, people, you're kidding. You should come. I, I should, should definitely come. <laughs> at, at some point I will. Um, but I've never seen snow. So I, it's always fascinating to me when I hear people talk about, you know, they're going skiing or snowboarding or anything like that. Because, you know, that's one of those experiences for me. Like I've seen it on TV, but I have absolutely no idea what it's really like to be there. Did you ever ice skate? So, so I'm from the Caribbean, so it uh-huh. doesn't it doesn't snow by us. And you don't even have there's not yeah okay so no. yeah no it doesn't doesn't no no snow yeah yeah uh, so I've never I've never I've never seen an ice skating rink I've never been skiing or any of that type of stuff. Well, um, if if you ever decide to come out, let me know. It's uh, it's fun. Um, it doesn't always snow in Denver. The mountains keep snow through the winter, but. 
Denver actually can have some quite mild days in the middle of winter. And then we can also have four feet of snow. So it just depends on the year. I do enjoy the snow. Uh, it, it's, it, it is a wonderful thing about Colorado. In addition to having like 300 days of sunshine a year, um, Colorado has snow, but has a fairly mild, uh, the, the front range, Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs has a fairly mild winter except for some of the time. So in January, you might have days that are, uh, it doesn't go above, uh, maybe five degrees Fahrenheit and it goes down to maybe minus, uh, 15. And that's cold. Let me tell you, that is cold. <laughs> but then you might two weeks later have a day that's 50 degrees and you're in your t-shirt. So huh. it just, it just, it's just a nice variety. See, I don't know about you, Cecil, but 50 degrees, I'm not in a t-shirt. I am like in two jackets, in long pants. I mean, that is just, that's freezing for me. <laughs> I can do 50 degrees. I think the coldest I've ever personally been is maybe like 26. Well, you also have to remember it depends on how wet the cold is, and it has a huge impact on whether it's uh, it's blowing. Wind has a huge impact. Spent uh, spent a couple weeks in the winter up in Alaska over the years, and in interior Alaska, there's like no wind, and I mean no wind, and it actually is surprising how warm it can feel even at like 10 degrees Fahrenheit when there's just oh. no wind and it's fairly dry air. So. Uh, I wouldn't say warm. That's probably an exaggeration, <laughs> but not bitter cold. <laughs> not bitter. Yeah, I, I, I understand that because um, I was in a layover in Helsinki once, oh, and uh, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was it was beautiful. It was during winter, and so we actually, you know, we were able to stay at a hotel for the night. And so we were in this hotel. And we decided to go walk up the street, just just up the street. And go to a restaurant, and the storm had blown in, and on the way back, it was just, we were just hopping from store to store, you know, walking the store, warming up, walking to the next one, just trying to get back to the hotel. And the yeah. wind was just whipping through. It was crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I'm hoping to go to Code Mesh again, but the last time I was in Code Mesh, man, Sandusky, Ohio in January is cold. It's so worth going yeah. to Code Mesh, but oh, man, it's cold up there. Yeah, I, I tend to... To see what's going on at Code Match, because you know, I'd be like, one day I'm going to be up there with everyone having fun. <laughs> one day, it's a fun conference. I'll say that it's a great fun conference. So, so what are some of the your favorite conferences that you've been through? Dev Intersection is is one of my it's my favorite big conference. It's it's really great fun, and uh, I did uh, I got to go to Dev Some uh, in Stockholm, and that was a whole lot of fun. Uh, that was great, and of course, uh, STD Conference in London. Um, those are great conferences here in the States. I'll take Code on the Beach was just great fun. Uh, it, it was the uh, first time I'd been to that conference uh, in August and I had just a blast. It was, it was a great time. So I really like that. Being on the beach, that's an incredible location. Uh, so I definitely recommend that to anyone. And I do love the, the fact that we do have regional conferences that are a little more affordable. I hate to see people just out in the cold and not able to do anything. But those are, that's some of them that I enjoy doing a lot. I don't do as many conferences as I used to because, you know, I'm supposed to have a real job. <laughs> so uh, my team has to do without me. And so uh, I, I try not to, uh, I try to spend all my time on the road. Sure. So one question I, I ask, and I know people have always asked me too, is when you're, when you're in the conference circuit and you're going from conference to conference and you're traveling around that much, 
how does how does work get done? Like, is is that a part of your job? Is that something you kind of do at the side? Is it a little bit of both sometimes? It's a little bit of both sometimes. Um, uh, I actually uh, I actually have an arrangement. Where I don't work full time. Uh, I work less than that uh, so that I can have some freedom uh, to keep up the the public side of my life. It's also important uh, that you know I can I can say, hey, we're looking for uh, to hire some people, and I can get out and, and share the word about about what we do. Uh, so it helps the company in that way. So it's kind of a win-win situation for me to be able to do both of those, uh, both of those things. So, um, yeah, you know, it's hard. It depends on what you're doing. I was independent for a long time. And so it was part of being independent was people knowing who I was. And that's how I justified it. But mostly every time I get on a plane, I lose money. And so if you're interested <laughs> sure. in, yeah, yeah. If you're interested in the money you make, if that's, if that's what drives you, then you don't want to do, you don't want to do conferences. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's a tough way to actually get out there and, and make a, a, a living of any kind. So yeah, so I, I, I have great fun. That's why I say I do conferences for hugs because I'm not really doing them for the money. Don't make enough money to justify really being away, but I, I wouldn't trade that part of my life. I really enjoy it a lot. We'd like to thank Kathleen for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with her. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also, remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash AFTKpodcast and on Twitter at AFTKpodcast. You could follow me on Twitter at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jarris. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, or on iTunes. If you really want to know what makes us tick, sign up to our newsletter where you get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From the Keyboard. Next set Away From the Keyboard, we'll have senior technical evangelist, Joe Rayo. I was in a band for a while. It was a heavy metal band called Scars of Life. I'll send you the Spotify link. And we were uh, signed to a, a label under Warner Brothers and played and had a lot of fun. And we were all, it's funny is that we were all were into tech. So my singer was a, an IT guy. My drummer who I was telling you about is kind of a mentor. He's, at, I consider one of the best programmers, developers to this day that I know. Joe, my man, Rayo! It's about time we got this guy at the show, man. I know, dude. It's like, come on, man. The dude's in a heavy metal band and he works for Microsoft now. I mean, how could he not been on way earlier? Yeah, exactly. But you know, we got him on, so you know, it was it was a lot of fun. So let's uh, you know, let's get it let's get it going. Yo, super interesting dude, has owned multiple businesses, now works for Microsoft, heavy metal band, signed on a major record label. Man, such a great conversation. Very, very cool conversation. So see you next time. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego!
No, so you told her how like we talk about nothing, right? That's what. Yeah, it's a show about nothing. We just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. (laughs) So how was your day today? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm in a very relaxed mood. I have a cider here and just enjoying talking to you guys tonight. Ah, what kind of cider are you drinking? Uh, I've got a Stella. Uh, The Stella Trois cider is kind of a go-to. For a, you know, it's not as dry as I'd like, but it's not a sweet cider. Mm, okay. Okay. So, see, that's what I'm missing. I'm missing a nice Malbec right now. That's that would be nice. Well, one of the sad things of my away from the keyboard life is I used to be both a brewer and a breaker, and I can no longer have any gluten. So I can oh. I no longer brew and I no longer bake, and I no longer appreciate all the wonderful beers in the universe. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, now, my my wife uh, just recently uh, learned that she's lack or gluten uh, as sensitivity, mm-hmm. and um, so we've been going through that whole transition, and uh, she's been, you know, going through it like a trooper. As of me, I'd just be crying and pouting and be like, I can't eat anything. Yeah, well, we can, you know, we can talk about that some if you like. It's 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 really been an interesting experience. If you were in Denver. I would tell you that we just found a new bakery, which is always fun, and we have our favorite restaurants, and then we have all the ones the work teams go to where I can just barely survive. And right. uh, you know, but I'm not full on celiac, where a molecule of gluten that that blows across the room and lands in the fryer and gets on my food is going to kill me. Uh, I just have a uh, my joints hurt, so um, I just stay away. I just have to stay away from it. 